Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the author of life and death. And we come to you now, God, trusting your word to lead us, to instruct us, and to reveal to us your sovereignty, your love, and your care for your people. We love you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, friends. How are you? Good? It's good to see all of your faces. As we come to John chapter 11 uh, this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series. I hope that you guys have enjoyed what we have studied so far. I'm looking forward to the next weeks and months as we spend time here in God's Word. This morning's passage is a difficult passage because it hits us right in the face with one of the harshest realities of life, the reality of death. When we come to passages like this, we often read them quickly and we recognize them, but maybe we don't actually sit and soak in the care and the thought of passages like this. So what I want to just lead us to do this morning is to look at this passage, look at its realities, and to soak in them and to basically let ourselves go with the passage here. Okay, so... Uh, there are going to be times where, as we go through this, you're going to think, hmm, uh, I'm stirred up with some grief right now. Maybe I'm stirred up with uh, some loneliness. And I just want to encourage you to let God's word do its work in your heart as you come to this passage this morning. Death is a reality. And death is harsh to us because it's final. It is the most final thing that we face here in life. Often we like to make death into this glorious thing uh, where maybe we dress it up and make it look pretty, but it is not something that is pretty. It is not something that we need to dress up. It's something we just need to look at and embrace and see that God is at work in his care for us, his kids. So this morning, my argument for John 11, verses 1 through 44 is this, is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over death who loves and raises his people. And we, as his people, need to run to him and trust him and wait on him in these circumstances. We need to trust him, run to him, and wait on him in these circumstances. So as we come to John chapter 11, we see right in this first chunk, I believe that this passage is broken into four different sections, verses 1 through 16. Uh, Jesus, where he shows his sovereignty over death. So that's verses 1 through 16, if you're taking notes. Jesus is sovereign over death. The second section is Jesus' declaration that he is the resurrection and life, verses 17 through 27. Verses 17 through 27, Jesus is the resurrection and life. The third section teaches us that Jesus loves his people, verses 28 through 37. Verses 28 through 37. And the final section, Jesus raises his people, verses 38 through through 44. So first, let's look at this truth that Jesus is sovereign over death. So again, as we come to John chapter 11, we find out right off the bat that there is a man who is sick. 
This man is named Lazarus. He's from the place that's called Bethany. This is not Bethany in the riverside where John the Baptist was baptizing people. This is Bethany that is located just two miles outside of Jerusalem from what we find later in the text. And in this village, there is Lazarus with Mary and her sister Martha. And then John, the author of this gospel, gives us a clue in verse 2 where he says that Mary is the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and that it was Lazarus, her brother, who was sick. Now, this is an interesting note from John because what it points us to is how John understood his audience as he was writing this gospel. So John, as he wrote this, knew that people would have heard of the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus. How do we know that? Why do we know that? Well, we know that because in the other three gospels, we see that account of a woman who comes to Jesus after he's been dining with tax collectors, and she goes and she pours this expensive ointment upon his feet, and then she washes it with her hair. Now, this hasn't happened in John's gospel yet, okay? So I, wanted to, I want to point you to that. We, we come, come to the gospel sometimes looking at the other gospels and knowing the stories that are there, but not recognizing the sequence of events that John is playing out as we're reading his gospel. This will actually happen in the next chapter. In chapter 12, we'll see Jesus, or John clarify for us that this is what's happening with Mary and Jesus. But this hasn't happened in John's gospel yet. But John is aware that his gospel has come after Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and his readers would have at least known about this account from the other gospel writings. So clarification from John to this. Now, if any, how many of you are doing one-to-one Bible reading? Anybody? Okay. What, does anybody know what kind of section this is in, in our, our method, coma? Okay. Yeah, so we are in a gospel narrative, yes. This is in the M section for meaning. This is one of those questions there says, does the author give us any parenthetical notes? Okay. Now you're going to notice there's no parentheses here, right? There's no like little brackets that give us any sort of uh, visual cue that this is a comment. But this is indeed a comment from John because we recognize that it happens later in the text. So it's not just about reading what you have right in front of you. It's about looking ahead and behind of your passage to understand your context. Now, if you want to learn some more about one-to-one Bible reading, I'd be happy to talk to you about those methods. Okay, so John is telling us that there's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Why is that such a big deal when we come to John's gospel? Well, we have seen Jesus work his way within other people, have we not? Okay, right in the previous section, in John 10, we hear Jesus talking to the Pharisees. In John chapter 9, Jesus encounters this man who was blind and had been blind from birth, but we don't know his name, right? We don't know his name, we don't know where he's from, we don't know what he's up to. In John chapter 7, we also see another encounter where Jesus is working within uh, the, the Jews. And in John chapter 5, we see another encounter where Jesus is healing a man who has been lame since birth. In both of those sections, all of these places, even in John chapter 2 where Jesus goes to Cana and performs the miracle of turning water into wine, we never hear about the identity of these people that he's encountering. But then we come to John chapter 11, and we find out about these people in this place with this specific event, and the text is going to give us a clue. So what do we find out about Lazarus in John chapter 11? Well, 
Let's look at verse 3 together. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, and they said, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Now, Lazarus is not just some guy in Jesus' story to make his point. Lazarus is somebody who Jesus has a personal relationship with that he is considered in such a way that he loves him, that he has deep affection for him. This is brotherly affection. This is not romantic affection, okay? So for those of you liberal scholars that want to say that, that's not the case, okay? So don't listen to the History Channel guys on this, this text. But this brotherly affection that Jesus has toward Lazarus, okay? Not only that, the verse continues on in verse 4. When Jesus heard of this, he said, The sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved not only Lazarus, verse 5 says, but Martha, her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. So all three of these people in this story are people that Jesus has a deep, intimate relational connection with, somebody that he really, really, really cares about. Interesting enough, the news comes, Lazarus is sick. Okay, So Bethany is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is in the wilderness, according to John chapter 10, right? because the Jews have just tried to stone him. And in John 10, 40, it tells us that he departed across the Jordan River to the place where John had been baptizing. So he's some way off of this. And these people send him word that his best friend or one of his closest friends is sick And what does Jesus decide to do? Stay longer. The text says he's going to just stay longer. And indeed, in all of this, Jesus says that this will not end in death. Well, we've heard the passage read. We know the rest of the narrative. Does Lazarus end up dead? Yes. So how could this be, Jesus? Right? Notice again what Jesus says about this particular event. He says, This sickness will not in death end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Has Jesus said anything like this before in John's Gospel? Flip your Bible to John chapter 9. Okay? John 9. Okay, can I have somebody just stand up and read verses 1 through 3 for us? Whoever gets there first, go ahead, stand up and read it. Ethan Spielman, great. Excellent. Amen. Thank you. So in John 9, the man who was born blind, the disciples come and they say, what what has he done? What has his parents done? Why was he born in this? Was it because of sin? And Jesus' response to them is, neither of them have sinned. This was brought about to bring the glory of God through it. Okay, so this is not the first time in John's gospel where Jesus is going to use someone's affliction for the purposes of glorifying himself and glorifying the Father through it. So Jesus hears the word of Lazarus being dead. 
and he declares before the disciples that this will not end in death, but this will be for the glory of the Son, that the Son may be revealed to those who are around. And the text continues to tell us, verse 5, that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. And then after that, in verse 7, he says to the disciples, let's go to Judea. How do the disciples respond to this, friends? They go, Jesus, that's not a good idea, right? And they actually have a point for once. Usually when they give Jesus some sort of advice, it's way off in left field, right? But this time they go, Jesus, that is not a good idea. Why? Because the text tells us in verse 8, Rabbi, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? (laughs) They're probably thinking, what is up with you, Jesus? You're going to go into this place, and this is going to lead to your stoning, your death. Okay? So, Jesus responds to their news in verse 9. Aren't there 12 hours in a day? And Jesus answered, If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because he, the light is not in him. Now, this is an interesting way for Jesus to respond. And we have to remember that this is all tied to the declaration that Jesus made in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He's revealed that he is the light who reveals the pathway, reveals what it looks like to have a relationship with God. So in his response to this, are the Jews going to try to kill you? He goes, I'm the light of the world. I'm going to reveal what it looks like to walk with God. But not only that, he says that those who walk in the darkness stumble because the light is not in them. So there's two things that are going on here. Number one is the idea that Jesus is certainly connecting the truth that there are people who belong to God and a people who don't belong to God. That is absolutely abundantly true, right? Those that walk in the light know Jesus. Those that don't walk in the light don't know Jesus because the light's not in them, okay? So people belong to God, people don't belong to God. But this is primarily about the fact that as the light of the world, his time has not yet come. He is going and walking as the light of the world And the darkness has not come yet. And what that darkness will be, friends, is when he comes to his death. When the people actually go after him and try to kill him. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I'm not worried about the Jews here because the light is still shining. The hour of darkness has not yet come. Now, who knows when the time comes? Right? These people don't. The disciples certainly don't. The Jews certainly don't. But the Jews have made plans. They've made plans to do something about this. So who is it about? Knowing the truth and the time? It's about Jesus knowing the truth and the time. He is the one who is sovereign over time. As the disciples hear this, In verse 11, he tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up, okay? He's he's on his way to go wake Lazarus up. Now, to the disciples, again, this sounds like bad news, right? Here's some life advice, friends. Never wake a person up from their nap, amen? Amen? Rachel? (laughs) Okay. Rachel woke me up from a nap yesterday. (laughs) I was snoozing with Maeve. (laughs) 
when you wake somebody up from a nap, usually if they're in a real deep sleep, right, they, they respond like, whoa, what's just happened and what's going on in the world, right? It's usually not a good thing. Or you're usually waking them up really quickly because something's about to happen and you, they need to take some sort of swift action. But this is a weird thing for Jesus to say, okay? Let's, let's put this into its context again. Remember, Lazarus is in Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is in the wilderness. And he says, we're going to Judea to the disciples. I'm going to wake our boy Lazzie up from his bed in his nap time, okay? It's like, why would you travel two days' journey and then go into Bethany in order to wake somebody up from a nap. I mean, the time that it's going to take to travel from the wilderness to Bethany, Lazarus is going to have a nice long sleep, okay? So the disciples go, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he's going to wake up. But they don't understand. Okay, so just a little more Bible trivia here. The, the phrase, he has fallen asleep, where else do we see that in the Bible? Do we see that in other portions of Scripture? Maybe like the book of Genesis? It talks about Abraham. It says that he lived a long life and then he was laid to sleep with his fathers. The Old Testament uses that phrase, fallen asleep, to distinguish those that have died another way that they describe death. So Jesus is saying to them, Lazarus has fallen asleep, okay? Now, that's a theological implication that he's saying in that, right? Because the idea is that when Old Testament saints died, they went to the place of rest, Sheol, right? They went to the place of rest. They rested in the Lord. They were in, not in this like purgatory state, but they were in this in-between, Right? This in-between where they're, they're really dead, but Jesus hasn't yet raised them to everlasting life with the Father. They're not actually in the presence of God yet. Okay, so they're resting until they're in the presence of God. And then Jesus, in the New Testament, what we find out after his death, burial, in that burial to resurrection stage, he what? He brings in his resurrection the Old Testament saints back into the presence of God. At least that's what the Apostles' Creed teaches us. So, they're resting. Jesus is using this language to them. Now, that's not coincidence that John is writing that, right? Why? Because John chapters 5 through 12 is signaling to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of what? The Scripture. He is the fulfillment of the Scripture. So, if they're resting, Jesus is now saying to his disciples, Lazarus is resting like the saints of old. Don't wake him up from his nap. And then Jesus just gets right to the point with the disciples, verse 13. He was speaking about his death, but they thought that he was speaking about natural sleep. But that's actually John giving us another parenthetical note to tell us that they didn't understand. And then in verse 14, Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In verse 15, interesting comment. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. If I was a disciple at this moment, I'd be going, what do you mean? <laughs> why, why are you glad that Lazarus is dead and that I didn't see it? So that you may believe? 
What is this about? And then Thomas, called the twin, says to the fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. And this seems like it could be another misunderstanding, but it's actually not a misunderstanding from Thomas. It's actually God revealing to him the truth of this situation. Guys, remember the comment in verse 8. Jesus, if we go to Judea, what are they going to do? They're going to stone you. So Thomas is looking at the death of Lazarus right outside Jerusalem, the place where the conflict with Jesus is at its height, And he's saying, if Lazarus is dead, it's because those people have an idea about Jesus. And if we go, we're going to go and die with him. He's basically saying here, let's go. I'm ready to die for the kingdom. Now, he could also be signifying that, okay, Jesus, if you go, you're going to die. And we're certainly going with you. We're going to the end. We're going to follow you. This is a great confession of faith from Thomas. It's not a misunderstanding. Yet in all of this, the the point that Jesus is trying to highlight in Lazarus' death is that he is working within these circumstances in order to bring about God's glory. And friends, what we learn from that is that we must see that all of the circumstances of life, guys, underline that, all of the circumstances of life are used by God for his glory. All of them. All of the circumstances of our life are used by God for his glory. Now, in John 9 and 11, that looks like affliction and death. That may not be the reality for all of us, but it certainly could be a reality for some of us. That God would use our affliction, the hard things that we face in life. Why? To bring us closer to him and to show his glory in and through it. Now, We don't wish for anybody to go through hard things, do we? No, no, we don't want anybody to face suffering. But the reality is, guys, is that God works through all of the circumstances of life in order to bring about his purposes. So instead of looking at affliction and saying, God, where are you in this? We should be looking at affliction and saying, God, how can you be glorified in this? There have been a couple of circumstances in my life where I've been able to walk with people who have gone through real suffering. I'm really thankful to the Lord that it hasn't been, uh, like, severe in many cases. Um, but there's, there's plenty of times that I can look back and go, that was really hard. How did they do that? How did they push through? And the only answer that I can come up with is God brought them through it. God has brought them through it. Now, for us, we may look at circumstances and think like, okay, well, cancer is a really hard circumstance for anybody to face. Absolutely. But some of us may not encounter that. Some of us have lived through that. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Somebody in our family that we're really close with. That's a hard circumstance of life. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your reputation's been just dragged through the mud. Guys, fill in whatever circumstance that you have faced with genuine hardship. Think of the hardest moment that you've ever faced in your entire life right now. How is God glorified through that? 
is easier to see on the other side, isn't it? It was a couple weeks ago I shared about Rachel and I experiencing miscarriage, going through that. January 20, was that 2019? Yeah, January 2019 to like June, July 2019 were the hardest, darkest moments of our life. And now we look back on it and we're like, the Lord has used that in so many ways for us to minister to others, for us to walk through that, for us to receive healing in him to know his purposes, and we, we still don't know why God allowed us to get pregnant and then lose our baby. But we do know this, is that God worked in it. Without a shadow of a doubt, we know that. I don't know all of the intricate answers to that, but I know that God used it. And that he was glorified through it. So yes, I hope that we never lose another baby. But... If it comes, I know a truth. God will use it for his glory. Friends, whatever hardships you've faced, God will use it for his glory. He's sovereign over it. We must wait on him. That's really what we learn in the next situation. As Jesus proclaims to Mary that he is the resurrection and life, verse 17, it tells us that when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He was dead for four days. So what's likely here in the time frame of events, guys, is that when Jesus received the news back in verses 1 through 3, he probably died on that day. Okay, It's most likely that he died that day, and then as Jesus waited two more days after that, then we're talking about the fourth day now that Lazarus has been dead, and Jesus is traveling to Bethany. He arrives, and it again, verse 18 tells us Bethany was near Jerusalem, two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. Now, this is not an odd thing, okay? If Bethany was within two miles of Jerusalem, okay, just think about how long it takes to walk less than two miles. Like 30 minutes, right? Or is that a speed walk? Yeah, that may be a speed walk. If you walk like me, it might be 30 minutes, <laughs> maybe 45, of, let's say an hour at most. Okay, so the reality is, is that this travel from Jerusalem to Bethany is totally doable within a reasonable time frame. The Jews are coming to comfort Mary and Martha in the reality of Lazarus' death, not an unusual thing. In verse 20, it tells us that as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So she heard the news, hey, Jesus is coming. And the thing that she does is she gets up and she's like, I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go find him. And in verse 21, Martha comes to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Okay, so guys, this is not Martha making a request to Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead right now. That is not what she is asking. She is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you were here, I know he wouldn't have died. She is confessing that she believes that Jesus is the sovereign God who's over life and death. She knows that Jesus could heal him. And she's saying, Jesus, if you were here, I just know that things would have been different. 
Okay? And Jesus listens to her. He hears her. And in verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha goes, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This is a faithful follower of God. She knows the Old Testament realities. She knows that there was the promise of the resurrection of those that believed in God on the last day. And she says, yeah, I believe that. I believe that Lazarus will rise at the end. Jesus and Martha are having an empathetic moment here where Jesus is entering into her suffering. He's hearing her and he's speaking godly truth to her and saying, your brother will rise. And she thinks that that godly truth is what the Old Testament reality is. And then Jesus comes out and says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What he's saying to Martha here is, yes, he's going to raise at the resurrection, but it's not going to be the resurrection of the last day. It's going to be the resurrection that is in me. Do you believe, Martha? And how does she respond? Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. In light of all of this, this hard circumstance, Jesus looks at Mary, or Martha, I'm sorry, here, and goes, do you believe in me? Do you trust me to do my work? And her response is, yes, Lord, you are the chosen one. The declaration is here that Jesus will come to fulfill the reality of the resurrection promises of the Old Testament. What we must do in that is consider the truth of who Jesus is. If Jesus is sovereign over life and death, the question ultimately becomes for us, is he the fulfillment of the promises of God? If he is, do we believe? Okay, but we're not going to see the fruit of this laid out just yet, right? Because the passage continues on. So Jesus is sovereign over life and death. He is the resurrection and life. But what we get to see intimately in this is that this is not transactional for Jesus, This is relational for Jesus. Verses 28 through 37, Jesus loves his people. Having said this, okay, so this is still tied to this connection, she went back, she heard this truth from Jesus. I don't know how long this took. This must have been a short conversation at least. Like, he must be a brilliant counselor. (laughs) He's like, okay, you're dealing with this. Let's talk about this. This is the truth. This is who I am. Do you believe? She goes, yes. And she leaves the situation. She goes back and she gets Mary. And in private, she says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So at some point or another, we don't see the whole thing of what Jesus and Martha discussed here. But at some point or another, Jesus has given Martha the instruction to go get Mary. And in verse 29, it says, as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. My question that comes to me as I come to the text here is, why in the world didn't you get up with Martha, Mary? <laughs> Why were you sitting back? Martha went, and, and yet Mary sat by. And I think the only answer we have in this is that this is how God orchestrated these events to work for his purposes. So Mary gets up. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And it says that the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that she got up quickly, and they went out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. 
That's a perfectly logical conclusion, right? Somebody is grieving. They've just lost somebody. So she's getting up and she's moving. Well, maybe we should go and make sure she's okay. See where she's going to grieve. In verse 32, as soon as Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Notice the difference between Martha and Mary. Martha comes to Jesus, and we just hear about this, this talk that they have. They have a conversation. Mary gets up. She runs to Jesus, and what does she do? She falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They said the same things. They just responded in different ways. Guys, grief doesn't always look the same from individual to individual. That's a reality for us. Grief does not look the same for each person. But the text tells us in verse 32, 33, when Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was what? Deeply moved, and in his spirit, and he was troubled. The sovereign God sees the grief of his people, and how does he respond? He weeps with them. That's what the text will tell us. As he asked the question, where have you put him? They said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible with the biggest implications. And the biggest implications are this. Friends, the God of the Bible knows your circumstances and he enters into them with you. And he's not the kind of God who just hears that you're grieving and leaves you in your grief. He's the one who enters into it with you. I think this is what Paul was trying to communicate in Philippians 2 where he said, though he was fully God, he denied himself in order to enter into our circumstances or what Hebrews 2 talks about where Jesus enters in. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus didn't just see this reality, he entered into this reality, and he wept with them. But this led to division among the Jews. Mary was grieving with her Savior. Martha grieving as well. And the Jews go, see how much he cared about Lazarus? They recognize that he really cared. Interesting note, too, if you actually like soak in on verse 33 for a second. Jesus was not just moved by Mary's grief. He was moved by the grief of the Jews that were with Mary. Now, if Jesus had any right to be angry with any group of people, it could have been the Jews that were trying to stone him, right? They're grieving, and what does the Son of God do? He grieves with them. So, verse 36, see how he loved him. He really did love Lazarus. But then there are other people saying, but they're right. This guy opened the eyes of a blind man. And he didn't do anything about this man dying? It's setting us up for what's to come in the next section. We're learning truths about Jesus. We're learning truths about ourselves. But really what it lands on is what follows up here. The reality that Jesus raises his people. 
In verse 38, Jesus, deeply moved again, comes to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Does that guys, guys, does that give you any picture of maybe something to come? Right? There's a grave in a cave with a stone in front of it. <laughs> Sounds familiar. And what does Jesus say? He says, remove the stone. And Martha <laughs> responds, and we see that she just doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, right? She says, Jesus, there's a stench. He's been in there for four days. Right? She's looking at the situation saying, like, not a good idea. It's going to be stinky. And Jesus says to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He points back to what he said to her in verses 17 through 27. I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will not die, but will have everlasting life. Do you believe, Martha? In those verses, she said yes. And now she's encountered with the reality of those within her circumstance here in verses 30 through four, 38 through 44. In verse 41, it tells us they removed the stone. And what does Jesus do? He, he lifts his eyes up and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that you, they may believe that you have sent me. What did he say in the beginning of chapter 11? This will not end in death. Why? So that the glory of the Son may be revealed. Now here in this declaration, as he's standing, they roll the stone away. Jesus lifts his eyes up to the Father and says, I thank you that you've heard me. You always hear me. Now enable these people to hear you and to hear me. What does he do? He shouts. Okay, so this is not just like him going, Lazarus, come out, right? He's like, Lazarus, come out. Come out of here. Now think about this, friends. The God who spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1, let there be light. The God who spoke human beings into existence, gave them the breath of life, is now the God who stands outside of Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And what does he do? He comes out covered in some crazy mummy-like apparel, (laughs) wrapped up, raised to life. And Jesus says to him, unwrap him and let him go. And that's where the scene ends for us today. What an incredible God we have. Death is hard. Its circumstances are real. They hit us with a harshness that the words can't even begin to describe. But what does God do? He works within him. He works within our circumstances so that his glory may be revealed. Now, we're not all going to be like Lazarus. We're not all going to be like the blind man of John 9. We may not see the aftermath of healing on this side of heaven. But what do we know? If we believe in him, we know that God is faithful 
to his word and his promises that he will reveal his glory. So friends, you may not see healing come in the light of what you desire this side of heaven, but what you will do is you will stand before the Lord God Almighty when you do die, and this side will mean nothing when you're before him. It will pale in comparison. You'll be with the resurrection in life. So healing doesn't always look the same for person to person, right? That's why I quite honestly think that those healing services that they say to like bring people to, I think that they're foolish. Come and bring them to this thing. We're going to say this formula. We're going to put our hand on you and then we're going to declare that you're healed. No, no, sir. You are not God. God can heal. How does he do that? I, I don't know exactly, but I know he does it. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, like James 5 says, come and lay our hands upon those that are sick and pray over them that God would have his way and that he would be sovereign over them. But we must tether our expectations to the person of God and leave the working of God to God himself. So don't fall for the prosperity gospel people that are going to tell you if you do what they tell you to do, then you'll be healed. Don't fall for that trap, friends. Because usually there's a string attached to it, isn't there? If you've seen this, if you walked around this, usually there's some sort of giving involved. There's some sort of manipulation. And it's not from the Lord, it's just it's from Satan. But we know the Son of God who is with us by faith. We know him by faith. So what are we to do in light of all of these truths about Jesus? Well, we're to follow the example of the people here in this text. We're to trust him like Martha and Mary. To trust him in light of our circumstances. We're certainly to run after him. When things get hard, right? (laughs) Guys, don't be like Mary and wait too long, okay? Run like Martha, okay? Run right to the Lord. Run to him. And what are we going to do? We have to wait on him. Jesus set up time in between these things. We're going we're gonna to be here for two days, disciples. Then we're going to go. Now, <laughs> if this passage gives us this impression that Jesus kind of just left Lazarus to the dust here, but that's not at all what he did. He worked in his time, in his way, for his glory. He'll do that for us too. In his time, in his way, for his glory. Now the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of God, who's sovereign over all things, who has the power to raise the dead, who is loving toward his people, Do you know the love of God? Not just intellectually, do you know it? Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom in response. Lord, we come to you in light of this passage, recognizing your sovereignty. We come in awe and worship. God, at times 
our, our true confession is we're, we're confused at why you would allow us to go through hard things. We don't always know what we are supposed to do in those moments. But I pray that you would help us as a church to respond to hard circumstances, not by asking, why did this happen to me, but by asking where you are and how you can be glorified in it. So help us to change our perspective, God. Help us to run to you in our circumstances. Help us to trust you. Help us to worship you as we wait on your work, your will, and your power in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.